Uh, 1 John chapter 1, and we're going to look at the first four verses. Do have it in front of you. And uh, I've entitled this series, Love, Light and Life. Uh, John is, uh, and and, um, in all probability, in my judgment, this was written by the same person who wrote John's Gospel. Um, There's some debate over that, but uh, I've never seen any reason I found particularly convincing for doubting it was the same person. Uh, So, uh, written by the Apostle John, and like his Gospel, and like the Revelation, which I believe also came from his pen, the three letters, um, they're all of a similar style. They're kind of poetic. They tend to be a bit circular. They go round and round the same themes, unlike Paul, who is a a thinker a bit more, uh, that that I I find a bit more easy to deal with because he's very linear, and that's the way my mind tends to work. With John, you're dealing with someone who's a bit more mystical, a bit more poetic. He likes to revolve themes round and round and chew them over and look at them from different angles. And you see these themes of love, light, and life coming up again and again. He likes to set up very bold contrasts between light and darkness, love and hatred, life and death. And, um, and we see that right from the beginning of the letter. So that's why I've called this series Love, Light and Life. We don't know who John was writing to, but uh, obviously Christians, but we don't know where they were based or who they were particularly. Uh, What we do know is, in all probability, this was written towards the end of the first century, as John was probably coming to the end of his very long life, and perhaps, uh, like some of the other books in the New Testament, uh, he's trying to get down on paper the things that he regularly tells people, uh, so that there's a a lasting testimony to what he says after he has died. But anyway, uh, here is John in his first letter... And, uh, and let's just start with the name he gives Jesus. Now, if you're familiar with your Bibles, as I know many of you are, you will have noticed as it was read that this sounds quite similar to the beginning of John's Gospel. deals with similar themes. In particular, it refers to Jesus as the Word. Here, here John says, the Word of life. Could I have the next slide, please? Um, the word of life. And this idea is quite a rich one. He uses a Greek word here, logos, which had a great deal of significance in great Greek culture, and scholars debate exactly what it meant, but people understood the logos as God's sort of organizing, rational principle for how he made the world. Um, it's also In Greek philosophy, it was very important, this idea of the logos being the way in which uh, the divine being made the world. And John kind of seizes that idea and says, oh yeah, the Logos, well, actually the best way for you to understand the Logos is this man Jesus. And and so he uses this expression, the word. And here in particular, he refers to Jesus, bear in mind when he's talking about Jesus, he's talking about a living, breathing human being whom he met and knew, possibly his first cousin, although that's a bit debatable, um, but certainly a real human being. And John's giving him this elevated title that he is the word of life. Imagine taking one of the fundamental concepts of Greek philosophy and saying, oh yeah, that, that idea you've got, this elevated transcendent idea you've got, 
It's him over there. This is what John is doing. And he calls him not just the word here, but says the word and qualifies it with the idea of the word of life. And so I just wanted to reflect on this idea that where life comes from and what life is. Life. Life is, uh, life is very important to all of us, isn't it? We're all alive. Most of you look alive uh, this morning. And, um, and we cling to life, don't we? And we want our lives to mean something. And we want our lives to be beautiful and purposeful. We struggle with the idea of our mortality. It's painful to us. Um, Life is sweet. And even when things are very, very difficult, as they often are, aren't they, on planet Earth, um, life is something we cling to. And John here says, if you want life, then the author of it, the foundation of it, is Jesus. Elsewhere, Paul says that Jesus is upholding all things by his powerful word that the whole of creation, not just living beings, but even the forces that hold matter together would come apart at the seams were it not for Jesus not only issuing a creative word that John speaks about in his gospel, but speaking constant, sustaining words, keeping each one of us alive, moment by moment. There is uh, an idea, I'm not sure if it's true, uh, that the name Yahweh, which is the, uh, the name, the best approximation we've got of the name of God according to the Old Testament, the Hebrew name of God, uh, is uh, people have speculated different things about what Yahweh means. But one speculation is, and I quite like it, it'll edify you this even if it's not true, so, you know, can't go wrong really, um, that Yahweh is meant to be the, a bit like the sound, as it's pronounced in Hebrew, that you make when you breathe. And if that's true, it means that every breath you take, the name of Yahweh passes your lips. It's true metaphorically, whether it's actually true literally. It makes me laugh that it means that even atheists, as they deny God with their voice, are using breath in which they speak his name. So I'm quite fond of the idea. But in any case, I'm saying it to drive home the idea that moment by moment by moment you are being sustained by Jesus' powerful word. These are the elevated concepts about Jesus that we find in the New Testament. That Jesus is the very word of life. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and life in all its fullness according to John's Gospel. And we go searching. Human beings are constantly on the search for life. How can I really live? How can I be the person, that I, you know, my best possible life? How can I live my best possible life? How can I be everything that I could be? How can I develop in all the ways that I want to? How can I achieve the things that will make my life meaningful? If John, what John says is true here, every effort that you and I make to find meaning and purpose and identity outside of Jesus Christ is doomed to frustration. 
every time we indulge our appetites in the hope that that will make us feel like we're really living, we end up as though we were drinking seawater more thirsty than when we started. But Jesus is the bread of life. He is the true vine. In him is life and life in all its fullness. So if you want to live, draw near to the word of life. That is who Jesus is. Next slide, please. Now, what about this word of life? Um, if you read that with your, you know, and paid attention to it as, as you looked at it, you, you can't fail to have noticed, really, that John labours a point in these four verses. He couldn't labour any more, really. And that is that he is claiming to be eyewitness, an eyewitness of this word of life. Uh, just go through the passage with me, starting in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, namely Jesus, the word of life, uh, on arche means like from the very beginning, from time immemorial in the past, so Jesus is pre-existent, the pre-existent Christ. That which was from the beginning, and then he says this, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands are, have touched. So he's saying... Every sensory experience of him we could have had, we had. And then he goes on to say, he says, this is what we are proclaiming to you about Jesus, the word of life. Then he goes on to say, the life appeared, we have seen it. We testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. And just in case you haven't got the point, he goes on. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. He is claiming eyewitness sensory experience of Jesus. Now, if you were a lawyer, I've spoken to lawyers and, and confirmed this. I'm not in any way a lawyer, but I've spoken to barristers, and, and they've all told me when I've asked them this question, if you're trying to prove a case, what you want is reliable eyewitnesses. You get reliable eyewitnesses and put them on the stand, that is very convincing to a jury. And so it should be. You don't get any better evidence than eyewitness testimony. Now, you and I have had, if we're Christians, have had experiences of Jesus. I mean, if we had, I don't know, what would we need? At least 48 hours. We could go around the church and we could all share our own personal experiences of the way that Jesus has worked in our lives. And that would be great. Nothing wrong with any of that. And I do believe that when people come to Christ, he reveals himself personally in all sorts of ways to them. But that, in the end, is not the foundation of our faith. The foundation of our faith is the revelation of Jesus Christ, his birth, his life, his teaching, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, that happened 2,000 years ago, that was proclaimed by the apostles who were given God-given authority to establish the teaching of the church. That is the foundation of Christian belief. Upon that... As we come to believe their testimony, the Holy Spirit comes and makes it all live to us and brings Jesus and makes him real to us and unveils Jesus in our lives and does all the wonderful, miraculous stuff that gets unleashed in our lives once we come to Jesus. But the foundation is this. And once you're looking for it, what you find in the New Testament is on page after page after page, the claim to eyewitness experience. 
Go looking for it. You will find it all over the place. If you'd like to discuss that with me, I would like nothing more than to have a coffee with you and bamboozle you with evidence for that. I read this great book by Richard Bockham. It was extremely boring, but very important. It's called the, uh, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, in which he goes into exhaustive detail, charting one after another after another of the indications that in the, in the Gospel testimony particularly, there is claim after claim after claim to eyewitness experience. Now, why is that important? It's because, as I think Peter says it, we are not asking you, he says, to believe cleverly invented fables. We saw it. Paul says 500 people at one time saw Jesus resurrected, many of whom, he says, at the time of writing, are still alive. Why is he saying that? He's saying it because the implication is you can go and ask them if you like. I think it was Pascal, the French philosopher, who said, I believe those, those uh, witnesses, those, uh, those witnesses that get their throat cut. And um, what he means is if people are willing to die for their testimony, you've got to take it seriously. Now, if we had one apostle or two, you might say, psychosis, whatever. But we are talking hundreds, many of whom went to their graves, absolutely maintaining that Jesus, they had seen the risen Christ. This is the foundation of Christian faith, and it is a firmer foundation, in my judgment, than any of the other world religions, much firmer, and a much firmer foundation than some of the many spurious understand philosophies of life that we now see in the Western world, uh, focusing in on, as they do, on the, I believe, uh, godless and ultimately fruitless attempt to build meaning in life by redefining personal identity. People find life when their identity is rooted in Jesus Christ, and they can trust that the testimony of these apostles is rock solid, as rock solid as anything we know in human life, because again and again and again we see people going to their graves saying, you can kill me if you like, but actually I'm not scared of it because I've already seen one man come back from the dead and he's promised me that I will too. All right. The other element in this passage comes at the end. He says, we're proclaiming all this to you. Why? We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. That's strange, isn't it? You'd expect him to say so that we would ha you can have fellowship with God. But he doesn't say that. He says so that you could have fellowship with us. And I suspect he means us as in the apostles, those who give this testimony. So he says, I want, we're proclaiming this message about Jesus to you so that you presumably will believe and then we will have fellowship with you. That will be the outcome. And that, that word fellowship there is in, fellowship is a fairly weak English word compared to the strength of the Greek word which it translates, which is koinonia. 
And he goes on to say, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Okay, let's try and get to grips with this. It seems behind this that what he's saying is, look, there's this apostolic testimony about Jesus. Gospel, according to Paul, he said, the gospel is, is this. Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures, rose again according to the scriptures. And every, we have all these witnesses of it. So there's a gospel testimony that Christ has died for us and he has risen again and he offers us that eternal life. And John writes this message to the people. The apostles proclaim this message. Why? Because when people come to believe that message, there is fellowship, not only between them and God, but between those who believe it as well. It's like, the, if, if there's a weakness in the, in the teaching of our end of the church over the last couple of hundred years, evangelicalism, it's been this, that is so stressed personal relationship with Jesus that it has become unbalanced in understanding that Jesus always wants to introduce you to the rest, to, to his other friends. So it, if you pictured koinonia as a dance, koinonia as a Greek word means a bit more than simply fellowship. It means deep kind of interpenetration and interweaving of lives. It means radical generosity and kindness to one another, radical sharing. So if you imagine it as a dance, Jesus is constantly inviting people to join the dance. As soon as someone grips his hand by faith, the first thing he does is pulls them into the dance with other people, with other Christians. He's always wanting to do that. He's never content to just dance with you on his own. He'll invite you personally, in you come, and you join the dance. And when, say, someone becomes a Christian, and say, say they become a Christian in, in this church family, and they join the church, the outcome is that once again the circle has gone round, another person has been drawn into the dance with Jesus and with his people, and as they are baptised, there is joy. Why? Well, there's joy for the apostles because the thing has been, the, 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 the circle of joy, if you like, the church building with joy has grown and once more being completed. The circle has turned once more. So John says, it'll make our joy complete. It'll fill up our joy again to see more of you coming into this relationship with Jesus and his people. The danger is, in our end of the church, that we end up with Jesus and me Christians who have privatised faith, and it's really just all about how I can enlist Jesus in my aspiration to become a super successful, wonderful person. Um, that really is not the gospel, really. If you're a Jesus and me Christian, you'll know it because church will become something you kind of tolerate. You might enjoy if it's good, and if it's not good, you know, you'll, you might at best tolerate it. Here's what an evangelical of the last century said, someone I, um, I've spent a good deal of time reading. And I've just noticed on this quote they've spelt his name wrong. But anyway, 
We are the most privileged people on earth. There is nothing to be compared with being a Christian and a member of the mystical body of Christ, Martin Lloyd-Jones. So let me ask you a question. If I offered to quadruple your personal worth, but you would have to leave your faith behind and not come to church ever again, would you do that deal? Honestly. Don't put your hand up. (laughs) This is not an appeal. (laughs) An anti-appeal. But would you do that deal? Are you saying no even though you'd be tempted? Or are you thinking there is no way on earth I would do that deal? It's a terrible deal. If I offered you the husband or wife of your dreams, but in exchange you have to give up your Christianity and give up coming to church and being a part of God's people, would you do that deal? There are lots of people in church who would. But it would be a catastrophic mistake for all sorts of reasons. We are the most privileged people on earth. There's nothing to compare to it. In in, uh, his farewell discourse, Jesus likened himself to the true vine and he invited his people to stay in the vine. And he said, I'm the vine and you are the branches. And so by implication, this is an image which incorporates all of us as branches. And he invited us He invites us to remain close to him. But obviously, it's evident, if you stay close to Jesus, you're going to stay close to one another because we're all enclosed in the vine. So here's a dynamic, organic picture of church life. Us as branches in the vine, held together by the Lord Jesus. And as his life comes up into the branches all sorts of fruit, all sorts of evidences of Christ's presence among us, characters changed, children turning to Jesus, older people being fruitful even as their hair gets grey, kindness and generosity, mission to the poor, lives of purity and chastity, Lives of generosity, just going on and on really. Faithfulness, truthfulness, all these good things in evidence so that you could say to any person outside the church who is a skeptic, by all means read Rebecca McLaughlin's book, but when you've done that, just come to church because in church you will see the presence of Jesus amongst the people. I gave my life for this vision of church. I got captivated by it as a, when I, I was a young Christian and decided there wasn't anything that I found more exciting about life than this. And so God called me into full-time ministry. That's not a calling for all of us, of course, to serve the church full-time. But I don't think this degree of love for God and his people is meant to be reserved for people who do it full-time. We're all called into different professions, different walks of life. But God is calling you today to play your part. If your faith has grown cold, you've started taking God for granted, I ask you to reconsider your life. 
Where is it really heading? What real meaning are you building that will last for eternity to come? And if you're a Jesus and me Christian, I ask you to reconsider the value you place upon God's people. For us to truly function like that vine, we have to be dancing not only with God, but with his people. The closer you come to Jesus, the more he's going to introduce you to more dance partners amongst his people to build his kingdom together. God bless you.